Genesis chapter 49 this evening. And for the past 11 weeks, we have preached through the blessings of Jacob upon his sons when Jacob is on his deathbed. Uh, It has in many ways been a bestowing of family blessings, but in other ways it's been a judgment seat. For all things in their life that they had been seeking to hide are brought out into the open and are made known before the ever-searching eyes of their father. Boy, that's a convicting thought, isn't it? There's going to come a day when we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, all the hidden things of our hearts are going to be revealed, going to be made known, and uh, the Lord's going to try our uh, work of what sort it is and uh, see what we've done for Him. That day's coming. It's not uh, if it'll come, it's when it'll come. And we all need to live with that in mind, amen? But as we read and study and preach through these, we cannot help but see also that there's not just a practical application or a personal application in the life of these boys. But we understand there is a prophetic application of them as well. Uh, One commentator put it this way, that these can be understood either dispositionally, meaning by the dispositions of the children, or dispensationally. And as we read through them, there is no question that they lay out, they chart for us the path that the nation of Israel would take and will take from uh, the exiting from Exodus uh, from uh, Egypt down to the ushering in of all of the promises that God has made unto them. And for 11 weeks we have gone through and seen each of the sons. Tonight we come to the youngest in verse 27. He is uh, the beloved of his father. Certainly, if uh, Jacob had been writing and recording or, or speaking these things in the operation and energy of the flesh, he would not have said what he is about to say. For he always looked at Benjamin with a tenderness after uh, Joseph was in Egypt and exalted. And, of course, uh, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And the brothers are having to uh, go back to try to get grain the second time. Uh, They tell him, we're supposed to bring Benjamin with us. And it grieves Jacob to such a point that he says, all these things are against me. He says, Joseph is dead, and and now you want to take Benjamin from me? Uh, He is my beloved son. And yet we find in him a beautiful truth that it seems in the studying of this that all the commentators have missed out on. You'll find that's uh, more common than you'd think. Uh, Concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and concerning an incident that is recorded for us in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. We'll come to each of those things in turn. But I want us to read one verse tonight, verse 27, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Let's read that again. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the blessing and help and strength that we've received from uh, this series and from this study. We just pray tonight that as we bring this to a close, as you bring it to a close, Lord, you would do once again in our hearts something that would derive glory uh, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for the one that raised their hand this morning. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our church. Lord, we thank you for the way that you're meeting with us. We never want to be at fault for, for not giving you thanks for meeting with us. Lord, we want to just give you the glory. Lord, we ask all these things now in Christ's precious name. Amen. As you read the blessing upon... Benjamin, it seems rather obscure at first. We understand, though, as we study and chart the history of this tribe, 
that the characteristic of a raven, a ferocious and a predatory wolf, is not very far from the lesson and the narrative that is given to us in Scripture. In fact, there comes a point in the book of Judges where the tribe of Benjamin is uh, standing at one side and the other tribes, all 11 other tribes, are standing at the other side. They go to war one with another uh, over an incident that took place concerning a, a Levite and a concubine. Uh, you can take the time to read that if you choose to. But uh, before it's all said and done, the Benjamites uh, exact 40,000 slaughters, 40,000 casualties upon the other tribes in that day. Certainly, their character is that of being ferocious, being a warrior-like tribe. There were two Sauls in your Bible, and both of them are from the tribe of Benjamin. There's a Saul in the Old Testament. He is the first king of, of Israel, or he is man's choice as the king of Israel, and certainly he could be a cruel individual. And then in the New Testament, there is a Saul named Saul of Tarsus, who was a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. And uh, that Saul of Tarsus was even more fierce than Saul in the Old Testament. He breathed out threatenings and slaughterings against the New Testament church until he met with one that he could not thwart. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, revealed himself to him when he was on the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. And the fervor with which he persecuted Christians now is the fervor with which he serves Jesus Christ. You'll find time and again this common strain, this characteristic throughout the history of the tribe of Benjamin. But I don't want to preach tonight on what happened with Benjamin's tribe, but I want us to look a little further in Scripture, and I want us to see what this presents to us. All of these have a prophetic connotation. We've noted each of them in turn as we've come to them. But the past four or five have uh, been particularly prophetic in their overtones. Uh, they present to us, uh, Gad, for instance, Gad and, and Asher and Naphtali all present to us sort of a mosaic, sort of a collage of Israel uh, through and after the tribulation period and during the millennial kingdom. We preached last week on Joseph, and Joseph presents to us Christ on his throne during the millennial kingdom. But as we come to Benjamin tonight, there's a little portion of Scripture that you really don't hear dealt with very often that I believe this prophecy deals with. And we're going we're gonna to get to it here in a moment. But I want us to look at three things tonight just very quickly before we find our place in Revelation. I want to say a word about the distinct signature that is given in this passage of Scripture. Now, we know that Benjamin's name is Benjamin. That's no surprise. If I was to ask uh, most of you, if you're a student of the Bible, if J Jacob had a son by the name of Benjamin, no doubt most people would say, well, it seems like I remember that he did, and it seems like I remember he was the youngest. Certainly in society today, it is not an uncommon name for someone to be named Benjamin or Ben or Benny or whatever it might be. But we find as we study the Word of God that Benjamin's name came to him in unusual circumstances. Go back to Genesis chapter 35 with me, and let's read a few verses in the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob has uh, come back to Bethel. He has uh, escaped and come back to Bethel. He has met with God. He has sort of had a renewed vision of the Lord, and he has uh, called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. And the Bible says in verse number 16, and they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel, that was Jacob's wife, Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, 
that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Anai, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, that doesn't seem to carry great significance until you understand what those two names mean. When Rachel is dying in childbirth, she cries out and she gives a name, a moniker, to this uh, baby boy, to this little son. And she calls him Ben-Anai, which means son of my sorrow. If you study through the Old Testament types carefully... You'll find that time and again there is a, uh, a, a paradigm of, of two individuals that represent to us the two great people groups in God's economy, uh, the people of Israel and the New Testament church. And let me just say that I believe that the people of Israel and the New Testament church are two separate entities in as much as they are defined in Scripture. That's not to say uh, that a member of a New Testament church cannot be Jewish by ethnicity. But I would say this, that I believe the promises that God made to Israel, He made to Israel. I don't believe He made those promises uh, to Israel, but now all of a sudden He's making those promises to the church. I believe that He made promises to an earthly people, the Israelites. And I believe, of course, as New Testament believers, we have much benefit being an heir of God through Christ in the New Testament church. But I believe that those two entities, those people groups, are quite separate. You'll find them time and again all throughout the Bible. As an example, Hannah and Penuel in the book of First Samuel. You'll find them to be a, uh, a, a parallel, a type of the New Testament church. You'll find time and again uh, with uh, different wives and different peoples throughout the Bible that they represent these two. And Rachel and Leah were no different. Uh, Leah is the one who is fruitful but ignored amongst the two wives. She loved Jacob. Jacob had a love for her, uh, but she is not the favored of the two. She is fruitful, but she is not favored. She had no struggle having child after child, and because of that, she did win the heart of Jacob. But initially, it wasn't Leah that Jacob wanted. It was Rachel that Jacob wanted. And it was only after Laban, their father, deceived Jacob that uh, he married Leah, and then in turn, years later, married Rachel. And so Leah is a picture of the New Testament church. Fruitful from the outset, but not the favored between the two. Rachel, on the other hand, is a picture of the people of Israel. She is favored, but she is barren. She's not bringing forth any children. She's not bringing forth any fruit. Uh, but she is favored. She is loved by her husband. Nonetheless, she is still the apple of his eye. And these two women represent to us the church and Israel, at least in some limited ways. Now you say, Preacher, why are you telling me all this? The reason I'm telling you all this is because when we consider such a truth, we find that there is a striking parallel between what happened with Rachel and Benjamin, or Ben and I, and what happened when our Lord came to this earth. Do you realize that the name Ben and I, meaning son of sorrow, meaning son of heartache, is a striking type of our Lord during His earthly ministry? Listen to what Isaiah says down in Isaiah chapter number 53 and verse number 1. It says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. 
he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Certainly that was the experience that our Lord had with the nation of Israel. He came unto his own. He was the shepherd of the lost sheep of Israel. You remember when the Phoenician woman comes and says that her daughter is lying at the point of, of, of death and she's got a devil inside of her and uh, he, she pleads with the Lord Jesus and he just simply ignores her. And we know that wasn't out of the lack of compassion. He was bringing her to a place where she could be helped. But whenever the disciples said, this woman is, is speaking to you, is crying to you, why are you not helping her? And the Lord says, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's a reason the gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter, listen, how how uh, propagating and how popular that Western Christianity may be. The Jewish people are still the apple of God's eye. He will always love the Jews as He always has loved the Jews. And when He came unto His own, what happened? The Bible says His own received Him not. Christ gave this parable, this truth to us when He said, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, amongst his own people, amongst his own family. When Christ came to this earth, He was despised. Uh, He was despised particularly of the Jewish people. They rejected Him. They crucified Him. They nailed Him to a rugged cross. And in rejecting Him and labeling Him a man of sorrow, a son of sorrow, in doing so... They sealed to themselves their death, or we might at least say they sealed to themselves their disqualification for a time of having God's favor upon them. Just as Rachel being a type of Israel in the flesh, uh, when she had uh, Benjamin and named him Benani, son of sorrow, and labeled him as a, as a despised child, as a, as a child of sorrow, as a child that has brought heartache. So the Jewish people, when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, when they labeled him a man of sorrows, a troubler, a disturber, an agitator amongst their people, when they rejected their king, they said, we'll not have this man to rule over us. We have no king but Caesar. In that moment, God ceased to deal with the Jewish nation in favor as He once had. Now, I'm thankful that God's not done with Israel just like He's not done with Rachel. You know that uh, the, the Bible teaches that it's not just New Testament saints that are going to be resurrected. It's Old Testament saints too. And uh, Christ said, I'm the God of uh, you know Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Uh, Christ said that God's not the God of the dead but of the living. There's coming a day when those Old Testament saints, their bodies will be quickened. They'll be changed. And their uh, corruption will put on incorruption. Their mortal will put on immortality. God's not done with Rachel. Uh, God still loves Rachel, and He's not done with, with her. He's going to raise that body from the grave. And in the same way, God is not done with His people Israel. He still loves them. He still cares for them. But for right now, it's as if God has hit the stopwatch on His dealings with Israel as a nation. I know we like to, you know, we read magazines and, and you know, this happened. And I, I remember last year, uh, you know, a rocket flew over and, and, you know, they said it was just like a wind just blew it out of the way. And I'm not saying that's not significant. God still loves Israel. He still protects Israel. But uh, let me tell you something. That's just crumbs from the table versus how God used to bless and favor them. He used to God walked before Him in battle. <laughs> Used to, God blew through the mulberry trees and God slew whole armies in front of them. Right now, they are a persecuted and hated group of people. And certainly, God is not dealing with them nationally like He once did. Why? Because they rejected the Lord of glory. Uh, God told Daniel in uh, the book of Daniel, chapter number 9, I believe it is, about the 70 weeks that were determined 
upon the Jewish people. We know that each of those weeks is a period of seven years. And that's what the Hebrew word weeks means. It just means Sheba. It's just a, a term that reflects the idea of seven of something. And uh, we know it is a week, but uh, he said that uh, 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven were determined upon the nation of Israel. We know that that's 490 years that were determined upon them from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem down to the uh, to the ushering in of, of the end of all these things and down to the bringing in of the kingdom of righteousness. You say, well, preacher, it's been more than 490 years since the Jews came out of captivity. That's exactly right. Because 483 years, 69 weeks, 483 years after uh, they came out, uh, the Lord of glory rode in uh, meek and lowly upon a, the, the foal of an ass and rode into Jerusalem. And they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. But before the week was done, they was crying, Crucify Him, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. And in the midst of that time, in the midst of that covenant, the Messiah, the Prince, was cut off. And He was crucified. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Well, that means there's a week left. There's a period of seven years that is left for God to deal with the nation of Israel before He ushers in the kingdom that He had promised them. And that's the seven-year tribulation period that is coming. You see, all these things bespeak what God is doing with the Jewish nation. We see Him as a son of sorrow, and Rachel saw Him as a son of sorrow. But notice what it says there in verse number 18. It says, but His father called Him Benjamin. What does Benjamin mean? Benjamin literally, in the most literal sense, it means son of power. But by implication, it means son of my right hand. You see, the nation of Israel, they saw him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and they hid their face from him. They despised him. They rejected him. They nailed him to a rugged cross. But when God looked at him, he didn't see him as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He saw him as the king of kings and as the Lord of lords. And through their rejection of him, though they called him Ben and I, God looked down and said, there's the son of my right hand. There's the son of my power. There's time and again examples that are given to us in Scripture. Psalms 110 and verse 1 says this, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And you may say, well, preacher, that's good and everything, but what does that mean? Well, Christ explained it in Matthew chapter number 22 and verse number 42 when He said this, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is He? And they say unto Him, the son of David, He, speaking of Christ, He saith unto them, How then doth David in his spirit call Him Lord? So when David said, the Lord said unto my Lord, he was speaking of the Christ, of the Son of God, the Son of Man. Uh, The Spirit called him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? We wonder if there's any more doubt about it down in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 32. Peter says this, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. And if we wonder if who it is, Uh, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The book of Hebrews presents it to us this way in chapter number 10, verses 12 and 13. If we wonder where Jesus is at this moment, it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. 
from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So I think there's great significance in the name that is given to us, the name Benjamin. For I think it presents to us both the suffering and the sovereign Son of God. Despised by the nation of Israel, represented by Rachel. And by the way, you know, to, to some degree, you could say the nation of Israel was the, the mother to some degree of Christ. I understand that, uh, that, uh, Christ did not have a, a mother in the same sense that you and I have a mother, but certainly, uh, just as Mary was used of God, uh, to be a vessel for the body, that holy thing that was placed within her, even the nation of Israel is treated in that same respect, in that same way. It'd be an interesting study sometime to look at the way that Christ dealt with his mother and look at the way Christ dealt with Israel, because there's a lot of similarities. But we know that Joseph was not the father. We know that never does Scripture call Joseph his father. There's one time, and it, and it is Mary speaking, and she is in the flesh when she says it. She said, I and thy father Joseph have sought thee sorrowing. You know what Jesus said? He said, how is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's, not little f, big f, my father's business. He was conveying to her that though Joseph had been a good stepdaddy, had raised him, had loved him, that Joseph was not his father. For God in heaven was his father. Just the mother might have called Benjamin the son of sorrow, Benani, but the father looked at him and with love in his heart proclaimed him to be the exalted son of his power and of his right hand. And to this day, listen, tonight the Son of God is seated at the right hand of the throne of God the Father, exalted and wait. He's not suffering anymore. He's not the man of sorrows acquainted with grief anymore. He's not the meek shepherd anymore. He is in a place of glory and exaltation. And he's just waiting till his enemies be made his footstool. What about those enemies? Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 tonight. Benjamin is a raven wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. You know, I think a lot of our confusion about the Word of God would be cleared up if we would understand that this is not a riddle book or a mystery book. There are times when God may show us something, present something in His Word, and we'd think, well, I, I wish He had done it different, or I wish it had been clearer or plainer. But by and large, we find that God does not take the scenic route in revealing truth to us, but there is logic and common sense. As you study through the book of Revelation, I've had people ask before, well, is, is Revelation a chronological book? Yes, it is. It has parenthetical portions within it, and those parenthetical portions are denoted as being parenthetical, but the book of Revelation is basically a chronological book. When we preached last week, we saw Joseph upon the throne. No, we saw Jesus upon the throne of Israel, of the millennial kingdom. And you know, if that was the last bit that the Word of God tells us concerning what will happen, then maybe we could have ended with Joseph. But it's interesting to note that the millennial kingdom is not the last that the Bible shares with us about the the future history, the narrative of the history of mankind. Nor, by the way, is the battle of Armageddon the final conflict recorded in your Bible. I understand there is a finality to the battle of Armageddon. But I think if we read our Bible carefully, we'll find there's one more battle to take place after the battle of Armageddon. In fact, it says this in verse number 7 of Revelation chapter 20, And when the thousand years are expired, what thousand years? The millennial kingdom. 
when that millennial kingdom, when that thousand years expired, you know, Satan, in, during that entire time, he has been bound in chains and, in, and cast into a bottomless pit. Now, I want you to listen carefully. You say, I want to understand more about the millennial kingdom. Then don't assume things. Don't, listen, don't assume things about it. Let your Bible speak for you. Let your Bible show you. I understand that sin will be dealt with swiftly and punished justly during the millennial kingdom. But you won't find a single place in your Bible where it says that sin is eradicated during the millennial kingdom. I'll tell you something else. People have an idea sometimes like after when the millennial kingdom comes in, we're all going to be sitting around in some kind of weird, wild spaceman uh, robes or something, and it's going to be some kind of surreal, cerebral existence. And uh, the only kind of people that are going to be there is those that have believed on Christ and have been resurrected, but that's not the reality that Scripture presents. Do you know there's going to be a good portion of people that will live through the tribulation period? Unsaved, unregenerate human beings, just as walk the earth right now, will live through the tribulation period. And what of them? The Bible teaches us that people will be born during the, during the millennial kingdom. The Bible says that a child will die at a hundred years old. You say, well, what does that mean? That means if a man dies at a hundred years old, it'll have the same tragedy and connotations with it as if, a, as if a child was to die today. It would be considered a short and a tragic and a brief life. But people will live. People will be born. People will die during the millennial kingdom. A thousand years will pass. There will be many folks that will be born. Certainly, there will be multitudes killed during the battle of Armageddon, but there are multitudes present at the end of the millennial kingdom. You say, how is that, preacher? Well, people are going to still continue to live. They're going to still continue to have children. In many ways, society will go on much like it does even right now, with this exception, that Christ will visibly rule and reign from the throne in Jerusalem, that righteousness will be put, uh, will be all over the land, and that sin will be put under, though it will not be eradicated. I found this to be true, that... <laughs> Even if I'm not sinning on the outside, I often find a way to sin on the inside. And I find this, that within my very being and nature and soul, there is that which would revolt and rebel and mutiny against the authority of Christ in my life. And that'll be the very same way it is during the tribulation period, or during the millennial kingdom for those that have never been born again. And so, at the end of this thousand years, verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison... And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, those two terms, they are ancient terms. Uh, Gog denotes a location. Magog denotes a person, a prince of that location. Uh, you'll have people that will tell you that that denotes the idea of Russia. That could very well be so. There are times when Gog and Magog are associated with two biblical places called Tubal and Meshik, and those two places a lot of people believe are reflected of Tobolsk and Moscow in Russia. I don't know whether that is so. Certainly it wouldn't surprise me. But if it wasn't the case, it wouldn't surprise me either. I know the Bible name given is Gog and Magog, a place and a leader of that place. What does this mean? It means when Satan is released from the bottomless pit, he will go out to the four quarters of the earth and he will use the, the influence, the power of this one local place where sin has found a haven and this one man who has chosen to yield himself to the power of wickedness and evil, he will use their influence as a gathering place for all those in the world that would seek to, uh, to, resurrect, to insurrect against the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, "...to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth." You say, what does that mean? It means they come from everywhere. "...they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints 
about and the beloved city. What is the beloved city? That's Jerusalem. The Bible says this, And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. I don't think the Bible is accidental or coincidental when it uses the term devour. Like a ravening wolf, the fire of God will uh, will fall from heaven and will consume those armies that have gathered themselves together uh, to try to take over Jerusalem, to try to kick Christ off of His throne in Satan's final insurrection, in His final battle, in His final revolt against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When this happens like a ravenous wolf in the morning, he shall devour the prey. The Lord of glory that's seated upon the throne will not be dethroned. And upon this day when all of them gather around, uh, it's interesting to note it says they gather around the beloved city. You know that the beloved city is within the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem itself, yea, and the temple is within the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, the throne that Christ will be seated upon is within the the bounds and the geographical lot that was given to the tribe of Benjamin. And on this day, all of the world's armies will gather once again to try to thwart the authority of the Son of God. But it will be no big chore for Him. For fire will just fall from God out of heaven. And in the morning, He shall devour His What about the next phrase in that verse? It says, Benjamin is a raven wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. And this is interesting. And in the night he shall divide the spoil. It's interesting for a lot of reasons. It's interesting for one thing because the coupling of that phrase, the morning and the the night, uh, is used in the Bible to denote one full day. In fact, in the creative uh, process, the Bible says that God created uh, the light and He called the light day and the darkness He called night and the evening and the morning were the first day. So anytime that you find those two phrases together in one place in Scripture, many times it is carrying the idea that something will be done within a, a 24-hour period or even by extension just within a rapid, within an instantaneous, with, within a, a, a momentous uh, uh, moment, just, uh, just absolutely immediately. And certainly it denotes the idea that this insurrection and rebellion will be put down immediately. But I think there's something else that's of interest and of note. Because when we consider that he devours the prey in the morning and that he divides the spoil at night, well, I, I want you to see it. Look, look at the rest of the phrase here in Revelation chapter number 20. The Bible says this, verse number 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, According to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. If the spoil is being divided, there's some that is of no use. There's some that is trash and refuse and is to be relegated and is to be thrown away onto the trash heap of eternity. And certainly we see that revealed to us at the end of Revelation chapter 20. 
Because those that have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ will stand at the great white throne judgment where that it's not being decided whether they're going to they're going to end up in a lake of fire. It's just being examined why they're going to wind up in a lake of fire. And as Christ, as Benjamin the raven wolf, as he begins to divide the spoil, the first thing he does is he takes all those that are unjust and he says, let them be unjust still. All those that are unrighteous and he says, let them be unrighteous still. They've rejected my son. They've rejected uh, the Lord of glory. They've, they've spurned my grace and my mercy. And they've done it for the last time, for they have been conquered, they've been thwarted, they've been laid underfoot and under toe, and now they're to be cast into everlasting darkness. But I'm glad that's not the only part of dividing the spoil. For look at verse number 1 of chapter 21. John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. <laughs> I always like that. You know why? Because God said he'd, he'd cast our iniquities down into the depths of the sea. And now when we get here, there is no more sea. The sea's done away with. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I like that. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You see, the reason that it denotes him as dividing the spoil all through the night. We know there will be no night there. We understand that. But through the entirety of eternity, he's going to be sharing with you and I the blessings, the spoils of the battlefield, of the victor's conquest. Righteousness will reign. Sin will be eradicated. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow for all things have come to a consummation. All things have come to a conclusion. When the Alpha and Omega says it is done, you know it's done. <laughs> because He's not just the Alpha, He's the Omega. When He says it's done, then it's done, it's finished, it's over. There's coming a day when all... There, there's come, there will be. An... Now, that ought to mean a lot of things to us. If we're not living for Christ, it ought to make us want to live for Christ. Because that means that time's not going to go on forever the way it does now. Our opportunities to get right, to live right, to do right, to serve Him right, to be right, are not going to go on forever. There's coming a day when the Alpha and Omega will say it is done. And what will our life be on that day? If we're suffering with sorrow, with affliction, with persecution, as so many people do, it ought to be a great comfort to us to know there's coming a day when all these things will be brought to a conclusion, when tears will be eradicated, when sorrow will be abolished, when death will be crushed underfoot, and when the Lord of glory will reign in righteousness. You're sorrowing. Paul said it's light affliction and it endureth but for a moment. It may feel like it's never going to go away, but it will go away may feel like it's never going to be over, but it will be over. And I've got news for you. When it is all over, our Lord and Savior is the victor and the conqueror. I know it feels, it feels strange sometimes to think of that because we're so beat down in this world. 
And Christianity is so loathed and hated. And I've got news for you. It's only going to get worse in this country. You mark my word. Except the revival breaks loose. It's only going to get worse in this country. It's only going to get harder in this country. I don't care. People, uh, and I've, I've said it before, but people say, well, you know, what about what's going to happen with the next election? I've got news for you. We're in a prophetical hour, not a political hour. doesn't matter what changes politically. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not for, for, uh, for relinquishing your civic duty. You ought to try to have a say. You ought to pray for your leaders. But I, I just, I, I'm just going to tell you, the Word of God says evil men and seducers are going to wax worse and worse. That's not going to change, amen? we got more politicians today than we've ever had. I guess the Bible's coming true, isn't it? Because evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse every day. But there is a culmination to it all. There is a conclusion to it all. When we stand on the day of the judgment seat of Christ, and I know there's a difference between the great white throne judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. I'm aware of that. But we could almost speak of them simultaneously in their impact and effect for you and I. Because the reality is, once the judgment seat of Christ comes, we'll have no more opportunity to serve Him than if it was the great white throne judgment. Once our life is done, once we have left this world, finish has been written on our life, what will we have done for the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we be filled with nothing but excuses, wood, hay, and stubble that will burn up and burn away? Or can we point to something substantial that we've done for the Lord Jesus Christ? Be it small, be it large, can we look at a life that's been lived truly and genuinely for Jesus Christ? For there is coming an end to the entire matter. What will that mean for you and me on that day? What will it be like on that day? Have you ever sat and pondered it for a moment? What will my life be like? What will that day be like for me when I stand before Christ? What will He say about my life? Will He say that I spent too much time in leisure? Will He say that I spent too much time in worry? Will He say that I spent too much time in toiling and working and laboring for temporal things? Or will He look at my life and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. I wonder what He's going to say that day. Because there's coming a day when there will be no more night, but after the prey has been devoured in the morning, the spoil will be divided. And all things are going to be brought to a conclusion. I wonder what it will mean for you and I.